Father, we love You. We are so grateful to be Your children. So grateful that You have revealed Yourself to us. You have revealed Yourself through creation in a, in a very general way, but Lord, You have revealed Yourself to us in the person of Your Son, Jesus Christ, and by Your Word. And we are so grateful for this special revelation that we have received of You. And it's our desire to know You, God. We want to know You in a greater way, always. Not just intellectually, not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge too, Lord. We want to experience You. And so I thank You that uh, we can gather together as a, a body of believers, as a family in Christ. We can gather around Your Word. And we have the promise that You will teach us by Your Holy Spirit. You will lead us into all truth. And so even as I am here uh, as Your messenger to preach and proclaim the truth, I pray that the people here would know that they are hearing from God, that God is speaking to them through His Word. And so we trust that, Lord. By faith, we believe that. With all of our hearts, Lord, we desire that. And so we thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen and Amen. Alright, turn with me to Romans chapter 11. And we're going to be finishing chapter 11 today. And I'm so grateful. I'm grateful for that. The last few chapters have been super deep, very heavy, and that's good. That's, that's good for us. But uh, as is so um, typical for Paul's writings, he spends a lot of time dealing with, with theology, with doctrine, deep truth. But then he goes into uh, the practical side of it. So in light of all of these things that we have learned, how then shall we live? And so as we get into chapter 12, it's going to really shift, and you'll see that it's going to become very practical. And so I'm very excited to move into that starting next week. Um, I think so many of us know Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's probably a verse that most Christians have memorized, and uh, that's, that's where we'll be picking up next week, and so I'm excited to do that. So with that, we're wrapping up chapter 11 today. So... I'd like to read a quote to you from A.W. Tozer, and that's how I'm going to kind of frame this, this message. A.W. Tozer, from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let's let that sink in. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That is a very true statement. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low views of God. High or low views of God. That's what we're faced with. And it's my desire that we, myself included, and all of us would have a very high view of God. That we would honor Him. That we would reverence Him. That we would fear Him with a healthy and a holy trust and respect. That we would adore Him. That we would serve Him. That we would obey Him. Uh, because He is worthy of every bit of that and more. Amen? Yes. And so that is having a high view of God. And unfortunately, in our culture so often, what we have is a low view of God. And I think in some ways, that's just because we're programmed that way. We have a very high view of ourselves, right? In this Western democracy, we have a say in everything. At least we would think that, right? 
Um, we want what we want. We want it now. This is the age of convenience. Information, it's at the, the tip of our fingers always. We are a microwave generation. And so I think that that can creep into our walk with God. That has certainly crept into the church. And so when we come to the Scriptures, that is washed away as we begin to understand more fully this awesome God that has saved us, this awesome God that we love. And so what is happening here in this text is as Paul has considered all that God has done, in some ways all of this book wraps up to this point right here in chapter 11 where he, he kind of closes out chapters 1-11 through 11 where he talks about the redemptive plan of God. Our condition outside of Christ, dead in our sin. No one is righteous, no not one. No one seeks after Him. But then God is so, so gracious and merciful comes in and saves us. He justifies us. He does for us what we can't do for ourselves. He makes us righteous. He gives us His righteousness. Amen? But then, He goes further than that. He begins to make us more like Jesus outwardly. We call that progressive sanctification. Day by day, we are becoming less like we used to be and more like Jesus. And God is committed to that process. And so, as Paul lays that out in great detail from chapters 1 to 11, he finally comes to this place where he bursts forth and prays. He cannot help but praise God when he considers God's majesty and salvation. Paul has this tremendously high view of God and it absolutely affects him from the inside out. And so that's what we're going to see in the text today. And so I've titled this, A High View of God. Brothers, sisters, we need it. We need a high view of God. And we need to be aware of when we have a very high view of ourselves and a very low view of God. May we repent of that. May God wash us clean from that. And may He open our eyes to the majesty of His greatness. So with that, we're going to pick up in verse 25. So there's really, I have this in four sections, the text that we're looking at today. A mystery revealed, that's the first part. Then we're going to see this divine paradox that is happening. Then we're going to see a grand reversal, and I'll explain these things as we go. And then finally, bursting forth in praise, a heart of praise. So number one, a mystery that is revealed. Verse 25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this is something we've been talking about in great detail for the last several weeks, this, this hardening, this blinding that had happened to the nation of Israel, and that through that blindness, through that hardening, they would reject their Messiah. They would reject the Savior, the Christ. But through their rejection, salvation would then happen at the cross and then it would go out to all the world. All the world. Well, Paul did not want the Gentiles that he was writing to to be ignorant about what God was actually doing. He said, I don't want you to be wise in your own opinion. That's a dangerous thing to be wise in your own opinion. It literally means to be wise by your own estimation. And it's another warning against spiritual pride. The very thing that the Jews had fallen into, they were God's chosen people. They looked down on everybody else with disdain, especially the religious elite of that day in particular. And so now I think Paul is trying to warn the Gentiles, you're susceptible to the same pride. Don't fall into that. 
Recognize what God is doing here and don't be wise in your own opinion. Don't fall into spiritual pride. He says, blindness indeed has happened to Israel in part. It has happened in part. But it's only for a time. It's not full, it's not fully, and it's not permanently. And that's what Paul is getting ready to enlighten us to. He says this phrase, this blindness has happened in part until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So what is this fullness of the Gentiles? What is this? Um, I want you to put your Sunday school caps on. I'm going to learn you something, all right? So just hang in there with me, all right? This is what we call uh, end times theology, um, fancy word eschatology. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about what we believe, Calvary Chapel Napa, how we understand these truths. Um, Most people don't really get into this stuff. Some people, uh, they live for it. They love Revelation, Daniel, end times, prophecy, that is their deal. It's not mine so much, but I think it's good to have a basic working knowledge, so I want you to have that too, especially when we come across phrases like this. So really big word. You ready for this? Now, I have taught my children's ministry this before back in the day, and so you know we, we'll be all right here, okay? Dispensational premillennialism. <laughs> dispensational premillennialism. That's what we are. We are a dispensational premillennialist at Calvary Chapel. So I just want to break both those words down. Dispensation. We believe that there are um, different dispensations throughout world history, and that is basically eras or chapters, if you will, where God has dealt differently with people based on the revelation that had been made available to them. So traditional dispensationalists believe that there's been basically seven. Seven different dispensations, chapters, eras, whatever you would like to call it. And so the first one was before the fall. That was the age of innocence. Adam and Eve in the garden, it was all good. But then we know the fall came, and then that brought in the, the time or era of conscience, as it is called. And that was from the fall till Noah. When Noah stepped on the scene, it was called human government. From Noah to Abraham came the time or the era of promise. Well, when from Abraham to Moses, when Moses came into the scene, what, what era would that be? The law. Exactly, the era of the law, the dispensation of law. That reigned, the law reigned from Moses till Jesus, and Jesus ushered in the age of grace. The age of grace. And then that will reign until the time that Jesus returns and sets up His kingdom on earth, and then we call that the kingdom age. So we, we kind of see it in that, in that way, that format. We're dispensationalists. We believe that there are seven dispensations and we believe that we're currently in the age of grace. Very good. All right. You're tracking with me. We're doing all right. So that's significant to understand that flow for this reason. We believe that we are currently in the age of grace where God's wrath is being stored. His hand of wrath is is being held back and the wrath is building, but He's extending grace. And there's going to come a time when He's going to drop His hands and there will be no more grace and wrath will pour out in its fullness. It's going to be a terrible, terrible time when God's wrath is unleashed on the earth. So we are currently in the age of grace. We believe that there will come the rapture. uh, The rapture of the church. God is going to call all His saints out of the world. We're going to go up to be with Him. And at that time will come the seven-year tribulation. 
the seven-year tribulation. The age of grace is over. There's going to be these seven years. The first three and a half years are a time of prosperity and peace. There's going to be this ruler that steps onto the world stage. We know that that ruler is the beast, but the world will not see him like that. He's going to be the Savior, and they're going to worship him as such. Halfway through that seven-year period, he's going to do something so atrocious that the whole world is going to know they've been duped. He's not who they thought he was. And then God's wrath comes, and it will be poured out on the world, and it will be cataclysmic, it will be catastrophic. And then, at the end of that seven-year period, we believe that Jesus is going to return. And He's going to come back as the conquering King. The conquering King. And He is going to reign and He's going to set up His kingdom on earth. It seems most likely that that's going to be the time when national Israel is going to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that they had rejected. They rejected Him. He came to His own. His own received Him not. He was crucified. And then that blindness continues uh, in part to this very day. But then they're going to think that the beast is their Messiah, we believe, until they realize that is not the case. They've been deceived. Then they're going to know that they had been had. And then when Jesus comes as the conquering King, we believe then their eyes will be opened and they will realize they will look upon Him whom they pierced. And they will mourn. I've been quoting that the last few weeks. And so we believe that when the rapture happens, that is the end of the age of grace. That is the end of the fullness of the Gentiles. And so blindness has happened in part until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. There's going to come a time when that last saint will be called into the church. The fullness of the Gentiles will come in. The church will be raptured out. And then we'll begin to see these things happen in succession. So that's what God is doing in the age of grace. Verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. So there will come a time when all Israel will be saved. Now, not every individual Israelite, but there will be this mass revival. They will put their trust in Christ. They will believe on Him and they will be saved. Paul quotes Isaiah 59 here. The Deliverer will come and take away their sins. Jesus the Messiah will come and save His people. This will be a reversal of John 1.11. John 1.11, as I've already quoted, it said that He came unto His own and His own received Him not. He will come again unto His own and they will receive Him gladly. And so that is when that blindness will be totally lifted. It's only temporary. It's only in part. But for now, we see that there's this divine paradox that is happening. Paul addresses that in verse 28. Concerning the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So while this blindness is there on the Jews, they are enemies concerning the Gospel. Now this is something that Paul knew experientially. If you'll recall, we just went through the book of Acts. Everywhere Paul went, the Jews were his greatest enemies. They were constantly trying to disrupt what he was doing. They were constantly persecuting him. They were constantly trying to stir up division and cause even the pagan mobs to come against Paul and to beat him near to death. Over and over, everywhere Paul went, those were the enemies of the Gospel. But it says concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That's kind of confusing. It's like, what in the world does that mean? God had made promises God had made some promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did He not? 
and God is faithful to His Word. His promise still stands. We sang that song, Your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness. God made promises to Abraham, and His promise would stand. His faithfulness would be great. And for that reason, God would remain faithful to the nation of Israel. Concerning His election, God would be faithful, and He still loved His people, and His promises were still good, despite their unfaithfulness. God made promises to the fathers, therefore they were uh, beloved for the sake of election. So, having said that, verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That is a beautiful verse. I thank God for that verse. I'll read it again. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God made some promises. And God has His commitment to His plans, to His faithfulness, and to His people. Therefore, that necessitates irrevocability. Irrevocable. He is faithful to His promises. He is unwavering. And it's the gifts and the calling of God that are irrevocable. God's grace and His calling is unwavering. God's grace towards us is not based on our goodness. It's not based on our merit. It's based on His love, His choosing, His faithfulness. Praise God for that. If it was based on our goodness or based on our being deserving of it, it would be, it would be revocable. It would be revocable. But it's irrevocable because it's based on God's promise, God's faithfulness, God's grace. So God's gifts to us God's grace towards us, God's calling us into the Christian life, God's calling on our lives individually, irrevocable. And that is one of the greatest promises because we can be unfaithful, we can doubt, we can have unbelief, we can fall into sin, we can fall into discouragement, depression, we can fall into all of these kinds of things and we can begin to, to question God's faithfulness. You know, when that happens, I generally tell people, the only thing that has changed is what? The way you're feeling right now. God's faithfulness hasn't changed. God's grace and God's calling and God's promises are irrevocable. And so, that is one of the greatest blessings for us. Recognizing that nothing's going to change that. God doesn't do take-backs. Because the reality is we didn't deserve it in the first place. You know, if we, we did something to kind of earn it or deserve it, and then we blow it, it would make sense that God would say, you know what, never mind, I, I take it back. But we didn't deserve God's goodness in the first place. So it's not like now God's going to say, yeah, you didn't deserve it in the first place, but now you really don't deserve it, so I'm going to take it back. It doesn't work that way. Praise God that His calling and His gifts are irrevocable. And it's based on His faithfulness and His love towards us. Now, we still have a responsibility, folks. Even though God's goodness towards us is unwavering and His faithfulness towards us is steadfast and His gifts and His callings are irrevocable, we still have a responsibility to obey. We still have a responsibility to persevere in the faith. We still have a responsibility to confess our sins, for we know that we all fall short. Every one of us stumbles in many ways according to the book of James, and I think we understand that universally. And so we need to be living a life of regular confession. God, I am, I am prone to wander. Prone to wander. And apart from You, I can do absolutely nothing. And God, I fall short in so many ways. 
but praise You, God, that You're faithful, that You're gracious, that You love me, and that Your love is steadfast. It is stable. It is strong. It is unmovable. And so that is recognizing that we still have a responsibility to take ownership. We have a responsibility to confess our sins before God. We have a responsibility to obey God. We have a responsibility to persevere in the faith. But we know ultimately it's God that causes us to persevere in the faith. It's God's unchanging faithfulness and grace towards us. Praise Him for that. Praise Him for that. And so now we're going to see this grand reversal. There's this divine paradox. They're enemies for the Gospel's sake, but they are beloved concerning the fathers. Now we're going to see this grand reversal. Those who are disobedient will receive mercy. Verse 30, For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. So, as we were once disobedient to God, we were once dead in our sin, we were rebels to God, we were in no way seeking after Him, we were very self-consumed, self-concerned, building our own kingdoms, building our own security, living for ourselves, yet we have now received mercy. We've received mercy. We've been made alive in Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God. He is no longer a judge who is uh, looking to repay with swift retribution. He is now a heavenly Father that delights to pour out His gifts of love upon us. We've been given mercy and grace. We've been brought into the family of God. Through their disobedience, Paul says, through their disobedience, through the disobedience of the Jews who rejected their Messiah, came the cross. Came the cross. They rejected Him. They handed him over to the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities fixed him to that cross upon which our Savior died. He breathed his last. He said, it is finished. He gave up the Spirit. And then came the, the invitation of salvation to the world. To those who would believe on Him. To those who would put their trust in the one and only Son of God. They would not perish, but they would have everlasting life. That was made possible for us because of their rejection, their, their disobedience to Him. But through the mercy shown to us, that which had been accomplished for us at the cross, they too will obtain mercy. They too will one day obtain mercy. What was made available to us through their rejection one day will be made fully available to them when their eyes are opened and when they receive their Messiah with open arms. Isn't that glorious? Isn't it amazing how God can do something like that? God's plan of salvation is amazing how God could come. We could never come up with something like that. Not in a million years. Not in a million years. Verse 32, it says, For God has committed them all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. So God has committed them to their own sin, their own rebelliousness. They were hardened in their disobedience, that He might have mercy on everyone. There would come a time when through their disobedience, salvation came into the world and then it's made available to all the world, Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, Paul is so blown away by this. At this point, as, as Paul is pulling it all together and he's considering this, this glorious salvation, he is so blown away by this that he just bursts forth into praise. 
he gives this glorious praise to God for this wonderful salvation that has been made available. Paul is blown away by God's sovereignty, His providence, and His mercy and salvation. God's in control. God is working all things together in ways that our minds can't even begin to understand. And it's all that mercy would be shown through salvation. And when Paul sees this, he bursts forth in praise. And that's what should happen, guys. That's what should happen. Um, that's why we get into the Word. We don't, it's not just about getting more Bible facts for ourselves. We want to have a deeper understanding of God so that our affections for Him will grow. So that we will go into a deeper place of worship. So that we will serve Him with, with zeal. It would be a delight to know His Word and to obey His Word. His words are not burdensome. We love His Word. We love His commandments. We desire to keep them because we have this great understanding of this amazing God. So this is where we're going to camp out in these last four verses here. This outburst of praise. This is what happens when you have a high view of God. When you recognize God more fully for who He is and what He has done and what He's going to do, you have this outburst of praise. So this is called, um, in theology, this is what we call theology proper. So there are many different types of theology. When we talk about Christology, the study of Jesus, or the study of the Bible, or the study of end times like we started out with, this is dealing directly with the nature and the attributes of God. And that's exactly where Paul is going here. When he considers this amazing salvation, he can't help but begin to extol and worship God for His character, for His attributes. And I have to say that that is a, a great place for us to, to uh, study. Um, as I have begun to study God's character, His nature, His attributes, it has taken my love for Him, my understanding of Him, to a much deeper level. And so that's something that I've committed myself to, is studying the Father and studying His nature. And so that's going to really come out in this study, but I also just wanted to uh, share this with you at this point. I would like for you guys to do the same thing. Uh, it would be good for all of us to really be engaged in this. So I just want to share a couple resources with you. I quoted this book in the very beginning, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer. If you've got a pen, write it down, get this book. And it is uh, a number of chapters, very small chapters, that deal with the attributes and the character of God. I'm telling you, it will affect you in very profound ways, your love and your pursuit of God. So get into this book. And here's another one. This is what I'm actually going through right now, devotionally. This is my, my devotion. Okay? And so it's Knowing the Living God. It's a workbook. I'm not usually into workbooks, but this one is an amazing book. And the chapters are not long. You can do them in one sitting. And it walks you through the character and the attributes of God. So write it down. Knowing the Living God. Paul Washer is the, the author of this. Um, I can't recommend it to you enough, guys. We want to get serious about studying God. And if you're having a hard time in the Bible, if you're having a hard time getting excited about the Word, those kinds of things can be very helpful. Supplementally, if you get into that, that will really encourage you towards God's Word because it's saturated with God's Word and truth about God. And the insights found in there are so good, so good. So uh, your pastor is encouraging you to get serious about the study of God. And those are just a couple of helpful resources. They have been and are a great blessing to me. And so I trust that it will be a blessing to you. So with that, let's uh, get into this last section here. Verse 33. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, 
both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. This is Paul's expression of deep emotion. We could just camp on that word, oh. Alright? You know, there, there is a danger of just having pure head knowledge. People that are, are just purely in the intellectual pursuit of God, um, they can become puffed up. They can begin to look down on other people who, who may have less knowledge or maybe disagree with them over, over different points. Head knowledge in and of itself can be dangerous. Heart knowledge in and of itself can be dangerous. There are people that check their brain at the door and they want nothing but an emotional experience and interaction. And the heart separated from the head can be very dangerous. Did Jesus not say the God, uh, Father is looking for those who would worship Him in spirit and truth? Got to have both. And so head knowledge that leads to heart knowledge that leads to absolute worship, obedience, and service is glorious. And that is the, that is the intended effect. And so that's what happens with Paul here. As he considers all of these wonderful truths, he bursts forth and prays, and then the rest of the book is going to be spent on how shall we live then? In light of these glorious truths and this heart of praise, now I want to have hands that, that follow. We want to have hands and feet, outward expressions of this inward reality that has so gripped and captivated our hearts. He says, the depth of the riches. Oh, the depth of the riches. God's riches are deep. God's riches are deep. You can never reach the bottom. You can't reach the bottom. God's riches are inexhaustible. Can't be exhausted. Can't be spent. God is not a needy God and He is not going bankrupt. And I say that because there are a lot of TV preachers that would have you think that. I mean, I think we've all really heard some whoppers in our day. God needs your money. Need this money. This this thing is going under. I remember I had heard of one pastor who said God told him that he was going to kill him if he didn't raise a million dollars. And uh, that is the kind of God that people are portraying on the on these TV stations. And nothing could be farther from the truth. God's riches are deep. They're inexhaustible. You know, our God is like a mighty ocean, and we are far too content to wade in the kiddie pool. Far too content to wade in the kiddie pool. You know, I think about someone who's fully suited up. They got the they got the the jacket on and the floaties and the goggles and the snorkeler and they're standing ankle deep in a kiddie pool. That's what a lot of us Christians are like. And you know, Spurgeon even talked about that. Some people go ankle deep in the river of God, some people are fortunate enough to go knee or even waist deep, but there are a few who dive in and are fully immersed. And so, let that be us. May we be fully immersed into the depth of God's riches. Let us not be content to wade in the kiddie pool. Amen? So what are these riches? These deep riches of God? The riches of His knowledge and the riches of His wisdom. When Paul considers this glorious Gospel of God's saving love, he praises God for His knowledge and His wisdom. Only God could think up such a thing. Only the wisdom of God could accomplish such a thing. And so I wanted to talk about those two things in particular. God's knowledge, God's wisdom. This is theology proper, as I have said already. So God's knowledge. 
I've uh, gotten this from Grudem, Wayne Grudem, uh, Systematic Theology. It's a great book. If you don't have it, I would encourage you to get it. He says, God fully knows Himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. And so I want to break that down for you a little bit. God knows all things actual. All things that exist and all things that happen, God knows it all together. God knows our actions and our thoughts. You can't hide anything from Him. It's not like you can go to a certain place where God will never see. God sees it and God knows what you're thinking. And so I find comfort in that because God's inescapable, so why even try? Why put on a front? If you're struggling with doubt, if you're struggling with anger, if you're struggling with fear, whatever that may be, you can just be honest because God knows anyways. I think what would be more offensive is to try to put on a front. And so I rest in the fact that I can't escape God's all-knowingness, okay? And this is what's really interesting about the fact that God knows all things. God sees all things equally vividly. God sees all things equally vividly. And what I mean by that, well, let's just put it in a human level. Uh, something that happened to you 30 years ago, 20 years ago, it's not quite as vivid to you as something that happened five minutes ago, right? Well, it's not like that with God. Something that happened 5,000 years ago is as fresh in His memory as if it happened five minutes ago. God's knowledge, He sees all things equally vividly. And that is a terrifying thing when it comes to sin. Because we can sin and then put a little time between it. We don't even remember it anymore. Right? And so I think in a large part, that's why we minimize our sin. Why would God judge that? You know, it's not that big a deal. But God doesn't have that. Okay? God sees all things equally vividly. Your sin 20 years ago is as fresh as your sin five minutes ago. And so that's why being outside of Christ, that's a terrible thing because we're accountable for that sin. The sin that you have long forgotten, God is still very hot about as a righteous judge. But that's why we should want to run into His arms of mercy and accept the gift of salvation that was given to us in the Son, Jesus Christ, so that we don't have to live under that reality. When our sins are washed away at the cross, you know what God sees equally vividly? The works of Christ on our behalf. We've been redeemed. We've been bought. Our sins have been washed away, removed, gone forever, paid for. And God sees that no longer. All He sees is His beloved Son who has taken our place and whose righteousness has been given to us. God is always fully aware of everything all the time. You know, like a search engine, something like Google, for instance, uh, it can get you some answers fast. But God doesn't have to compute. In fact, God can already answer your question before you think of the question. And so God knows all things all the time. He doesn't reason to conclusions. He doesn't carefully consider how He's going to respond. He already knows it all together. That's, that's hard for our minds even to begin to comprehend that. God knows the end from the beginning. He never learns and He never forgets. God cannot learn. That's crazy to think, isn't it? He cannot learn. He cannot forget. If God's knowledge ever changed or were to grow, that would mean that He is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. So God has to be all-knowing of all things. He can never learn any more than He already knows. That's an amazing thing to consider. God knows all things actual. God knows all things possible. 
This was a really trippy one for me. This is sometimes called God's contingent knowledge. He not only knows all things that are, He knows all possibilities. And we see that happen in the Scripture. God more or less says, in this situation or that situation, if this were to happen, that would happen. So God not only knows all things actual, He knows all of the possible outcomes of all possible differences of of actions or directions taken. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's an awesome thing to consider. That is our God. His knowledge is amazing. But we're also told, oh, the depth of the riches of His wisdom. Oh, the depth of the riches of His wisdom. God's wisdom, according to Grudem, means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. So this goes beyond the knowledge of God. God not only knows what the best thing is to do, but He knows the best way to do it. We oftentimes, we don't, we don't have that luxury, do we? We struggle and we agonize over the right thing to do and the best way to do it. But God is divinely proficient and efficient. God is divinely proficient and efficient. He knows what to do and how to do it the best way every time. And we don't have that. We just don't. And honestly, sometimes even when we know what the right thing to do or the best thing to do is, we hesitate because it it might cost us something or because it's inconvenient. But not so with God. He knows all things. He knows the best thing to do, the best way to do it, and He never hesitates to do it. Well, Paul says, how unsearchable, how unsearchable is God's judgments. How deep are the riches of His wisdom and knowledge and how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Unsearchable. I was trying to think of like, how, how does that, how would that work for us? Okay, so let's say that um, there was something on this property and I said, alright, I want you guys to fan out and comb the property to look for it. I think we could comb this property pretty quickly and probably find it, right? It's relatively small. There's a lot of us. Now we're to say, okay, now there's this same item, but it's somewhere in the country. And you guys just need to go in a, in a single file order, calmly go out the door and get after it. You know, and it's like, that would never happen. That would never work. Unsearchable. Now imagine God who's infinite. Infinite. How unsearchable are the riches Uh, And how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. God's ways. I love God's ways, don't you? His ways are better than my ways. His ways are better than your ways. His ways are higher than all of our ways. Isaiah 55, 8, 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is amazing. God is good. He knows all things and He's totally wise. And so trust Him. Rest in that. Believe Him. I mean, what, what is the, what's the, the other end of this thing? I mean, you're going to trust yourself? You know, you really want to look for your own wisdom in all things? No. Praise God that we can come to Him and we can trust in His knowledge and His wisdom. And this is the thing. God shares these things with us. There are certain attributes of God that He does not share. We're, we're not um, omnipresent. We know that. We can only be one place at one time. We can't be everywhere at once. But there are certain attributes that God can share with us. God is love. God gives His love to us. We are recipients of it. God's love flows through us. That's called a, a communicable attribute. And so that is the case of God's wisdom and His knowledge. He shares that with us. 
And He gives us wisdom. He's promised us that. We can come to Him when we have need of wisdom and we can believe it without any kind of wavering whatsoever. God is faithful and He gives wisdom. So praise God. I, I want to rest in that, don't you? I want to go to God for those things. He's made that available to us. Well, verse 34, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Who has known the mind of God? And the idea here is to fully and intimately understand every aspect. Who has fully understood the mind of God? You know, I was thinking about this. I think most people can barely manage a calendar. Barely manage a daily calendar, yet some God orchestrates the affairs of all of human history. And so who can know the mind of God? And then it says, who has become His counselor? And so... Who in the world is qualified to advise the Lord? Now, if I were to ask for a show of hands and rephrase the question, who here has tried to advise the Lord? I think all of our hands would go up, would they not? But God doesn't need our advice. God doesn't need our wisdom. God doesn't need our counsel. We need His. God's wisdom, His knowledge, it is vast. The riches of His judgments, they are unsearchable. His ways pass finding out. He doesn't need our help. He offers us His help, and we need that. Amen? And then it says, verse 35, Or who has first given to Him, and it shall be repaid to Him. So who has first given to God? Nobody. Nobody has given to God first. God gave first, and God gave the most. Amen? God initiates. And when we are no way seeking after Him... God intervenes. God intervened in the human history by sending His Son Jesus to die for the sins of the world. When we were enemies of God, God demonstrated His love towards us that He sent His Son to die for us. And we love Him because He first loved us. No one will give to God first. No one will outgive God. And then it says, and shall it be paid to Him? Who has first given to Him and shall... Or shall it be repaid to him? God will never be indebted to anyone. God will never, ever, ever be indebted to anyone. I, I read this quote to you recently, and I'm, I'm going to read it again. I'm sure many of you know the name Joel Osteen, and I would encourage you um, not to ever, and I say this very gently and humbly, I would encourage you guys, he's a false teacher. And I've heard enough of his stuff to be able to say that with complete and total confidence. And here's just one of, his, one of his quotes regarding this very issue. It says, When you're in difficult times, it's good to remind God of what you've done. God, I've kept my family in church. God, I've gone the extra mile to help others. I've given, I've served, I've been faithful. In your own time of need, you should call in those seeds you've sown. So God's indebted to you. You need to remind God of all of those things you've done and call it in. And so that is... Absolutely false. Paul would be the first one to say it. Who would give to God and that now it would be repaid? Now they are indebted. God's indebted to them. Never, never. Blasphemy. Verse 36, For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. All things are of Him. Salvation originated from God. It was God's design. It was God's plan from eternity past. All things are through Him. 
He accomplished that salvation for us by sending His Son to die in our place on the cross. He lived a life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to die. That if we put our trust in Him for salvation, His righteousness, His innocence would be given to us. And our sins, our transgressions were punished on the cross and washed away. Gone forever. So all things are of Him. All things are through Him. And guess what? All things are to Him. Salvation is ultimately for His glory, for His pleasure, and for His purposes. Now, we are certainly beneficiaries of so great a salvation. We enjoy many wonderful benefits and blessings, not least of which being saved from from wrath, but we've been invited into something so very beautiful that we will enjoy for all of eternity. But this is for God's glory above all things, for His own pleasure and purposes, advancing His kingdom and building His church. Amen? All things are of Him, through Him, and to Him. To whom be the glory. To whom be the glory. And I've talked about this before. God's glory can be described in three ways. One, it is what it is. God is glorious. That never changes. Nothing can take away or add to it. He is glorious. But then there is ascribed glory. That's when we we come into uh, contact. We begin to see God for who He is, and then we begin to ascribe that glory back to Him. You are amazing, Father. You are eternal. You are infinite. You are loving. You are gracious. You are merciful. You are everywhere at all times. You know all things and can never learn more. You're amazing, God. That is to ascribe glory. And then there is to reflect His glory. And that's when God touches a life and a life changes and that life begins to reflect God to the world. And God deserves every bit of that. To Him be glory. For how long? Forever. 30 seconds before you eat dinner? Two minutes before you fall asleep at night? No, forever. All day, every day, and for the rest of eternity, God deserves all the glory. And what's that last word in verse 36? Amen. Amen? Amen. Amen. That means truly, truly. It is so. I agree. And that is... Amen. And so I wanted to just close with a quote here. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, he says this. This is an an adaptation from a very lengthy quote. What does this amen mean? It means that you confess that you are nothing, that you acknowledge gladly that you are what you are solely by the grace of God, that you have ceased to defend yourself, you have ceased to try and excuse yourself, you have ceased to try and justify yourself in any way whatsoever. The man or the woman who says amen is the man or woman who says I am nothing, he is all. I know nothing, I can do nothing, I have nothing. I owe all things to the grace and the glory and the mercy of God and I give it to Him. That's what amen means when you say amen to that. Have you said amen to this? Can you say amen to this? Amen. Amen.